You are listening to From Sobriety to Recovery with Jesse Mogul, episode four, my two-year soberversary. Let's get to the show. Welcome back to From Sobriety to Recovery. I am your host, Jesse Mogul, and it is an honor and a privilege to have you here. Two years sober. It is a beautiful, beautiful thing to reach these milestones in sobriety and recovery. And I very much remember day one and seven and 14, and they're very like burnt into my head. And at that stage of my sobriety, I was very much like every Friday was the soberversary. It was extremely important for me to celebrate that and honor myself for having gone another week. And while the first month was really just the most heinous of all detoxings while still going to work and you know praying each day, I might be able to hold down a little bit more food or a little bit more water. Um, the body was really in a state where even thinking feeling, saying to itself, hey, why don't we try drinking again was was just, I mean, when you're still dry heaving or throwing up water week three, it's clearly things aren't going very well. And waking up in that crap tub and uh, thinking I might die, and this is how people might find me, was, was the wake-up call of all wake-up calls. And so those first few weeks, and they led into months, and it's like I was very excited. And we talked about this over there in uh, the episode number two about, you know, was it one day at a time versus I'll never drink again. This idea that, okay, today is the day that I can make the change. I can become a new version of myself while also having this eye on the future, knowing I would never drink again, because I just, something about this time felt different. And I had tried to quit, you know, tens and tens of times. And sometimes it was none of them were clearly serious or they they would have stuck. But I remember some of them being like, I said, I'm never drinking again. And, you know, four days later, hell, that night, it was like, okay, maybe a little bit. Um, And so when this time happened, I knew it was different. I felt different. And it was extremely important to me to start to do certain things differently than I had done before. And so by checking into Kaiser Permanente and going in there and starting to follow their program, that was a huge shift and a huge change because previously I had just been like, I'll just stop and go about my daily life and nothing else will really change. And that's not the way that was ever going to really be successful. I didn't do any research. I hadn't done a whole lot of planning. I would just wake up and be like, that's it, no more. I'll stop for a month and then, you know, stop for a month, always knowing day 31 was day one of getting back into drinking. So as you start to think about what it is you're going to shift in your life as you're moving from sobriety into recovery, and even if you're just sober curious, you're, you know, dipping your toe into this, wherever you're at in your journey, and maybe you're a long time sober and recovery person, and you're just looking for a little bit of inspiration into what you could be doing now to rejuvenate, whatever, we're going to be able to cover that in today's show, because I'm going to go over with you, I mean, it's a top 10 list, but just because the human brain wants to organize information into a numerical list, it's, it's, it 
it's just something that the human brain enjoys doing. You know, the brain's a big fan of the power of three or the beauty of seven or the number 10. Um, it's a thing. The brain just likes to list things out. So I listed them out to make it super simple to discuss them. Um, but they're really, uh, I would say some are in an order, some aren't. Let's just get into it and let's see how it all plays out. Because you know me, I like to fly by the seat of my pants, even though I've got very detailed notes. Um, one of the things that I very much embrace in all of this is this idea that change happens with intention, that I make a choice and then I intentionally go about my behaviors to bring me about the, um, let's say, result as close to I've envisioned it as possible. And so each day that I was sober at those first beginning stages, it was very much with the intent. The number one thing was not to drink. And so you'll notice that showing up a lot here in this list. So let's get into it. Now, the first one, and this is one I'm putting in here strategically as number one, because I did it differently. And I think it's important because of transparency to discuss this. Um, please, by all means, don't let this be something that you could utilize as a, a justification for changing what you're already doing. If, if Number one is get booze out of your house. Now, I say this having not done that. I kept booze in my house. I actually kept booze in my room. I had bottles of wine, I had beer, and I had whiskey all within basically an arm's reach from my bed. But as I was doing research on this, getting booze out of the house was extremely important. Almost every single place said it. And so I'm like, okay, I didn't do that, but I don't want to leave it out and then have there be some sort of gap in this information. Now, I said at the beginning, don't let this be a justification for you to change it. Well, Jesse did it, so I'll just go buy some booze and I'll keep it in my room and we'll see if I'm really serious. That was my mindset. My mindset was, if you're really serious, then let's do this. It wouldn't matter if it was sitting right there on your nightstand every single morning you wake up and before you went to bed. If you're serious, you're going to do this. Like I said, that first month, my body was just destroyed. My left arm would go weak a lot. Um, I like clenching of my heart. Um, they were doing some tests at the hospital. They swore to me I wasn't having a heart attack, and that it was possibly anxiety. It was it was whatever it was that I remember that pain very intensely. And so to me, I just chose to keep the alcohol in the room. And again, I have talked to. to hundreds and hundreds of people since then. And, and some people kept their paraphernalia. Some people kept booze in their house to test themselves. And other people, they did not. They tossed everything. Um, I would highly recommend you probably go that route of the tossing everything. All right? And I do not necessarily think that my way was the best way. It was just my way. And on this show, we discuss things in a non-judgmental manner, really, in order for you to just get a deeper understanding of me. And whenever I talk to y'all, I want a deeper understanding of you in your way. I don't judge right or wrong. I seek to understand you at a better and deeper level. That's all I'm saying about this. So you can get booze out of your house. That's what, oh, I mean, Google this. Everybody's going to say something to the effect of you cannot have it around you. And that's going to show up a lot in this list when we start to talk about how you socialize and, and who you're hanging out with and the activities you do. So just be mindful that you're going to have to change some behaviors. You're going into sobriety. Nothing will ever be the same once you step away from alcohol. It's so entrenched in our society that it is so socially acceptable. It's everywhere. 
It's everywhere all the time. So getting it out of your house is more than likely going to make it so there's a minimum effort you have to make in order to get it into your belly. And maximum, you're just going to be like, I'm not doing that. It's going to give your brain enough time to pattern interrupt yourself out of the, the trigger that started you off wanting alcohol. That's why you get it out of your house, because it gives you that moment from being stimulated to want to drink to being able to respond to drink. There's now a gap there. You can't just walk into the fridge and grab a beer. Now you've been triggered to want to drink, and in order to get alcohol, you have to go somewhere to get it. And that's that, that's that time window in between where you can say, no, this is not who I'm going to be. And that leads us into number two, make drinking a non-negotiable. Make it the number one priority in your life. This is serious. This is serious. You've chosen to do this. If you are at the point where you are contemplating and planning what a life of sobriety and recovery would look like, or you're you know, even, even more so forward and you're already in the action phase and you're like, no, that's it. I'm not going to do this. This, I mean, mind you, we're middle of January now, two-year soberversary. So for some of you, you may have resolutioned this. And so now you're like a week or two, or you're binging these episodes, and you were literally at the beginning of, a, of the year. I don't know when you are listening, but take this seriously. You did not arrive here without a ton of contemplation and planning. Again, I started to release the identity of being an alcoholic from day one because that's what I had been told I would need to do. I had a coworker who had been 30 years, 28-ish in, in the sobriety and recovery, and he was just like, from day one, just start to release the part of you that is just solely dedicated to alcohol and drugs. Begin to shift yourself. I made drinking, it was, it was non-negotiable. It was not an option. It was not going to happen. There was 0% chance alcohol was going to touch my lips. Now, I want you to take this to heart here. It's not sobriety that sucks. It's life sometimes. Some days are just better than others. Who do you want to be while you're healing yourself? Do you want to be the person who kept this promise to yourself? And we're going to go over the, the, some other information about that. But are you a person who has integrity with their words? Are you impeccable with your words? This is like the the book Four Agreements by Don Miguel Luis, Don something like that. Um, I've got it in my show notes. I'm bringing him up into the show later. But he talks about being impeccable with your word. Did you make this promise to yourself? Then follow through. You are looking to love yourself again. Begin to trust yourself again. And this is how you do it, by each and every day following through. All right? What are you doing to make this the real deal? What are you doing in your day-to-day life that is making this the real deal? And the next two are going to touch upon that. So number three, you want to identify your anchors. Okay, now this word has been used a lot of different ways. There's anchors, there's triggers, there's cues, there's activations. It doesn't matter in this regard. They are all being used similarly. They're like synonyms for this conversation. Are you being triggered? That's an anchor as well. It's something that you've anchored into your life. It's a cue. It's something that activates you to want to start drinking. Now, here's the things that it's normally going to come down to. It's normally going to be negative emotions that are going to that are going to trigger you, right? That that are going to, you've you've got your 
your these negative emotions are anchors for you. Whenever they happen, then you are cued off to start using, to start wanting to find alcohol and drugs. It's fear, anger, sadness, shame, guilt, and jealousy. These six are more than likely the ones that you're latched on to. Self-worth can show up in there, right? But self-worth could have a fear of not being accepted by other people. So that's why I make it a subcategory. Same with rejection, right? You might be getting rejected and that makes you feel angry or fearful that all of a sudden this person doesn't love you or sad they don't love you, right? Or somebody rejects you in favor of somebody else and now you're jealous that that somebody else gets this person's attention and you don't. So when you start to notice what your triggers are, begin to see where where they are being set off or they're anchored into these fear, anger, sadness, shame, guilt, and jealousy. If you're taking notes, write those down. Fear, anger, sadness, shame, guilt, jealousy. These negative emotions are triggers. They're your anchors. When they get set off, when you trip over this anchor, that's what's stumbling you towards alcohol and drugs. And this show isn't just for the alcoholics and the drugs and, and, the, and the, the, the drug users. I mean, this is where food, right, overeating and bulimia and anorexia, and this is where gambling and sex and porn addictions, and this is where these, hell, even, even our freaking phones nowadays become this place to just bury our face into. When we are afraid of not being accepted by others, we go find a community on the phone. When we get angry, we turn to Twitter and rant. When we get sad, we go listen to sad music on Spotify. When we have shame or guilt, we go and trash on other people on Instagram. When we feel jealous, we go look at pictures of our of our lover that's spurned us. Whatever it might be, right? these are the things that stumble us towards alcohol and drugs. And that's why number four is shift your behaviors, right? This is where you're going to want to start changing your actions, right? You've got to do different things than you've normally done, right? For me, right out the gate, I reminded myself that everyone changes, but not everyone is aware of their changes. You've heard the saying before that um, people don't change. Now, I often hear that out of the mouth of people who are just not aware of the changes they're making, or or it has more to do with values and principles not necessarily changing. So when you go to shift your behaviors and somebody's like, well, you, you're not going to change, you know, you, you know, once a duck, always a duck kind of thing. Your values and your principles may not change what you value and find extremely important, right? Maybe those things haven't necessarily changed. And we're going to get into that a little deeper. But what I'll say is like, if you value um, freedom, which means you don't want to be held to somebody else's standards of time. So you show up late to events all the time, and then you get sober, and people think that that's going to change about you. But then you still show up late. They're going to be like, see, you're still the same old person. Even though you know you've put in a ton of work to not be drinking in order to get there. So just be mindful if somebody says, you haven't changed at all. Just because that one particular human behavior didn't change doesn't mean you haven't changed. 
right? So don't let this idea or somebody say to you, see, you haven't changed, um, knock you down. Because that could bring up fear, anger, sadness, shame, guilt, or jealousy. And next thing you know, you're drinking again. So be mindful of how when you go to change your behaviors, you're still going to have some personality um, issues that you might want to iron out. Um, I'm a huge proponent for showing up early for things. It's just I'm respectful of my time and of others. And at the worst, I show up early somewhere and I just play on my phone while I wait for the other person to arrive. So be mindful of the change thing. That's my little sidebar tangent for number four of, of shifting your behaviors, you know, changing your actions. Be willing to do different things. If you're used to you know going to work, punching in, punching out, coming home, sitting on your couch, in your under, watching The Simpsons, eating donuts, you're going to want to change that behavior. Because if that if there was beer next to those donuts for years and years and years, and now you just take away the beer, everything about your environment is going to be reminding you of, hey, there used to be alcohol here, right? It's like... It's like if you like opening up a, one of those old highlights magazines when we were kids, and they have the pictures side by side, and it says what's different, and it's a picture of you sitting on the couch in your underwear eating bonbons, watching The Simpsons, and one has a beer on the table, and the other one doesn't have a beer on the table, and the only difference of that picture is that there's just not a beer, or there's not a plate of blow, or whatever your drug or alcohol choice is, right? Whatever that's the only thing missing. Well, think about that. Really feel into that for a moment. If your mind has an anchor of sitting there on the couch watching The Simpsons in your undies, and next thing you know, you've got no beer there, but everything about you, this entire situation is screaming, there should be a beer there, you're probably going to need to change that behavior. I was I was told that I could change around my room, change around my living room. I actually rearranged the furniture around my living room and on my front porch because I spent a lot of time getting drunk there. So when I walked in, now the couch was in a different place. Ultimately, I put everything back to where it was before because that was the best feng shui I could come up with. But for that first month, things were different because I needed them to be. So start thinking about the different behaviors that you can start to pick up. If you're used to going on social media and looking at certain things and you always had some alcohol or drugs next to you or you were on while you were doing that, right? then don't get on the social media for a little while. Um, if you went on social media, but you're only looking at models or only looking at celebrities, then maybe start following some sobriety and recovery pages. I got one at from sobriety to recovery. There's a lot of them, really good ones out there. Um, big fan of like drop the bottle. Um, I think is one that I'm a huge fan of and that's all I got off the top of my head, but there's some great ones and it's not hard to find. We're all using the same hashtags. Um, are you used to picking around on the internet? Just piddling, just wasting some time on the internet. Maybe shift your behaviors on the internet as well. All right, start researching cool things that you've always wanted to learn about. Addiction took away my hobbies and talents. So I started to look for ways to bring those back right out the gate. It's one of the reasons why you're listening to me now on a podcast. I went to school for communications. I studied television broadcasting. Um, I was building websites and learning how to do, you know, this is back in like... <laughs> the mid-2000s, so podcasts weren't as popular then, but we were learning how to put audio on websites. I remember doing something like that for my MySpace page. Yes, I had a MySpace page, right? So all of these things that, I, that I'm doing now, I started to pick up back then in my very first few months going back and reading and writing and learning, right? Maybe you journal when you used to not journal. Maybe you start reading books, self-help books, or maybe you just go and read murder mysteries or novels. Whatever that is going to be for you, try new things out. Be like a kid again. Kids try out new things all the time, and they don't always take. 
You might, you know, I remember trying karate and I didn't like that. And then I played the violin and then I played the xylophone and then I got into glee club. And then I was like, I mean, this is all in like elementary school. Then I tried being in the school plays and playing sports and we moved around a lot. So there wasn't a lot of continuity there for me when I was a child, but I tried out a lot of things, ultimately sticking with collecting sports memorabilia and baseball and basketball and football cards and playing Nintendo and riding bikes with my friends. That really became my go-to move and, you know, every 12 months, we were living somewhere new. So there was, again, not a whole lot of continuity, but as a child, I tried out a lot of things. I loved reading on the weekends and going to the library and getting random books on random topics. We had the Encyclopedia Britannicas, and I remember reading those for fun. So yeah, I was a bit of a nerdy kid. I was very isolated. (laughs) Played chess a lot too. Uh, And there you go. I just said I was very isolated. Number five, don't go it alone, right? You're looking for people who will understand you. This is why meetings, this is why when somebody's like, hey, I'm going to get sober, people are like, what meetings are you going to go to? AA, NA, Refuge Recovery. For me, it was Kaiser Permanente. Still involved with Kaiser Permanente. Still have my therapy there. Still meeting uh, with my therapist. Still going to some of their addiction awareness and relapse prevention courses just because I like to sit in rooms and talk about this stuff. Right, the opposite of addiction is connection. Write this down on one page. The opposite of addiction is connection. You're going to these meetings to connect with other people, and if you're surrounded in your normal life, but by these give it or take it drinkers, I call them normies. They're normal. They just they can give it or take it. It's not a big deal to them. They can have four one night. We wake up a little bit of a hangover, and they're not immediately looking for booze. They can go three weeks, and they're not even thinking about it. They can go to a restaurant, order a beer, not even finish it. There's those give it or take it kind of drinkers. They're the normies out there. And when I first got into sobriety, I wanted to be around people who were wanting to talk about sobriety, who were wanting to talk about healing and understanding suffering and trauma, right? And that's why you're going to these meetings. That's why you're getting around other people who are going through a similar journey, right? Be around them for their positivity. Be around them for their energy they bring to to your sobriety and do that for them as well. Bring some energy to theirs because they're looking for these same things. They have this same list. Maybe they're even listening to this show. And so they're going to be seeking the same things you are, right? And so go to these meetings and also realize when it comes to meetings, and we've talked about this a little bit, and we're going to only talk about it more, is just because you're doing it your way doesn't mean that somebody else doing it their way is lost any more than you're lost if you're doing it your way and it's not the same as their way. We all have our own ways of wanting to do this, right? We don't want to be, a, we don't want to be uh, you know, dry sobriety where it's like we're just sober and we're not going to meetings, we're not learning anything, we're not seeking ways to heal ourselves. You know, we talked about this in the six human needs. We want variety and we want some level of certainty. You go to these meetings for the certainty that they're happening and you go there for the variety of the people that are going to be there. You contribute a little bit, you, you, you make some connections. Now you've attached four of your human needs to going to that meeting. That's positive momentum forward for that day. It's amazing. So get around people who are embracing it. And if you're around people who are, you know, take it or leave it drinkers and they don't understand, then make sure you're taking some time out to do these meetings or call up somebody who, who is more into this than, than your normies are. And if you're around people who are just trying sobriety on or they're just temp- temporarily doing it because of a court order or because their job's making this, know that that could be harmful for you in the future. They might decide they want to go back, and if you've made good buddies with them, right, then they may not want to go back alone, and they could cajole you to come back with them, 
right? Again, that's sort of, they're not doing it against you. They're doing it for themselves. They want some sort of connection. They want some sort of security by bringing you with. Now they feel like they've got somebody who's on that ride or die, let's jump off the bandwagon kind of thing. And that's, if you're serious and you're into this, you don't necessarily want that kind of influence, right? And if people are not doing sobriety the way you want to be, and and I say you want to be, without judging them, Go find someone else who is doing it more like you want. If you want to hike and people around you want to play basketball and you don't have any interest in the basketball, go find some hikers. All right? If you want to write while other people sing and, and that's not working for you because you don't want to sing, then go find people who are writing. All right? If you are around people and they're so bright in recovery, you just want to sit there and watch YouTube videos all day long and you want to go outside and be active, then go find people that be active. If it's working for them, what they're doing, then more power to them. And if it's not, you can't make them change. And we'll discuss that more when we when we get into accountability here in the next few of these. But you can't make other people change the way they want to do their sobriety and recovery any more you can than you can force someone you love to join them to join you on this journey. You might have a spouse or a partner or a a relative or a friend who's killing themselves with alcohol and drugs too, and you decide to step into this world of sobriety and recovery, they may still be contemplating it and planning on it or have just no desire to do it. They might be in pre-contemplation and they think there's, you're ridiculous for even needing, for even thinking you need to do this. You do you and find people who are wanting to do it similarly and, you know, also be opened up to new hobbies. Maybe take on basketball. Maybe you didn't like it because you were a kid and you weren't good, but now you're older and nobody cares like they did in middle school and high school. Now we're all just playing it because it's better than sitting on a couch. And that's going to lead us to number number six. Monitor and be mindful of your socializing. Now, in my research, I found some sites that would say, just do not go out, don't go anywhere, hold yourself up in your house or hold yourself up in meetings and that's it. Quit socializing, that's all. I'm not going to say quit socializing, but I am going to say be mindful and monitor how you are socializing. And what do I mean by be mindful? Yeah, going to a sports bar to watch your favorite team play where you used to get smashed, not a good idea. Going over to your buddy's house to play video games while everyone sits around and smokes dope, probably not the best idea. You got to think about... Where you want to go. Where do you want to be intentional? Again, sports bar. Used to get smashed. Bad idea. <laughs> you gotta you gotta understand that yes, certain events might have to get put on the back burner. All right. People who are normies, they might be on the same page with you. So they are all saying, Hey, let's go after work, let's go down, do a little happy hour, let's all socialize. It's been a long day. And they might have one or two and get home and be fine. Eat some dinner, play with the kids, go to bed. Everything's fine. Play it through to the credits. Play it through to the credits. Right? Whatever romanticize, romanticize, romanticization, romanticization you have about being able to have one drink, you rung that bell. You pass that. You can't put the toothpaste back in the tube. You are not here listening to show a show like this or even other shows like this and contemplating long-term, if not lifetime, sobriety and recovery because you think that you can just go back to having one every once in a while. More than likely, you've tried quitting many, many, many times with this mentality. I'll quit for a little while. I'll uh, dehabituate myself from the binge drinking, and eventually I'll go back and I'll be able to have one or two. But that monster lives inside you. 
and it will live inside you. This is going back to the I'll, one day at a time versus I'll never drink again. You just, it's it. It's done. And two years in, I can tell you my life is infinitely, infinitely better. I've gone and I've done the things. I've gone to weddings. Hell, I DJed a wedding. I've gone to the bar mitzvahs and the quinceaneras. I've gone to the Super Bowl parties and to the sports bars. And I've gone to concerts and live events and not drank. And I've been present and had great conversations and enjoyed it all. And was it worrisome at the beginning stage? Yeah. I remember doing that three-day run of the dead at Wrigley Field. But I told the guys I was going with, hey, man, I'm sober and I'm going to stay sober this whole time. And they drank and had fun. One person did way too many drugs, and it was really it was it was like a, it was just so obvious that that's how I used to behave. It was just I I I pitied him in the moment, in the time, and I was sad and I was heartbroken for for my friend watching him do this to himself. And we're all in our forties, and I was like, thank thank God I chose sobriety and recovery. And so yeah, but that was six months until I went to my first shows, and I went with people who I knew would support me. Right. And we'll get to that, you know, here at number seven. But for the quit socializing aspect of it, just be mindful. Right. If you if you get the come on, just one tonight, then you can say, no, I'm good. Not feeling well. I got to work in the morning or I got to do something when I get home. Right. You don't have to tell people your whole story. If you feel the, the desire to fine. Right. I mean, I could tell the story of waking up in the shit tub and if somebody's still like, oh, dude, stop being a puss, just have a drink. I don't even want to be that person's friend. Like, seriously, bro. I just told you that story and you're like, come on, just have one. Play it through to the credits. All right? Other people have a drink, they go home, they do normal things. Right? For me, that wasn't the case. I'd have a drink, I'd socialize, everyone would think I was a controlled drinker, then I'd go home and I'd cash off a handle of, of vodka in the next six hours and wake up smashed trying to make it to hope my hotel job. It, it wasn't working for me. Play it through to the credits all the way to the end where there's that deleted scene that they slide in after they've said no animals were harmed in the production of this film. And they put all the trademarks from all the studios up. Then there's that deleted scene that pops up and is Jesse smashed out of his freaking mind, laying naked in his kitchen while the stove is on fire because he left a freaking saute pan with oil in it on the stove on high. Don't need to do that again. Play it through to the credits. Get to that deleted scene because that's your reality. You have those stories. Don't forget them. You're not missing out on anything that won't come back around. Those concerts, those birthdays, even the weddings. I get they're not as frequent, but you have to go then, then have a sober buddy. Have someone you can confide in who will go outside with you whenever things get a little tense for you, when the anxiety or the stress or the cravings start to creep in. And that leads us to number seven. Tell someone. The opposite of addiction is connection. So tell someone, right? preferably who you're living with, Right. If you live alone, then find that friend who will understand. Tell the people you live with, a friend, a family member, you have to tell someone. And this isn't necessarily so that they can hold you accountable or make you do it. And we'll get to that in number eight. But it's absolutely so you have someone in your life that you can confide in. So choose this person wisely. Right. You want to be a kind of person that this this, let's say we're going to call them your confidant. You want to be the kind of person your confidant looks at and says, wow, look at the, what they're doing with their life. And you might have told this person multiple times that you're quitting and then you didn't follow through. You lapsed, you relapsed, you went back to the way things were. So if you've done that multiple times with this person and they doubt you and they don't want to stand there by your side, then you might have to go find someone else or really walk them through the process of what you're doing differently. 
Talk to them about listening to this podcast. Show them your journals. You don't have to let them read them, but show them that you're writing things down. Show them your Google Calendar where you've been putting in your AA or your refuge meetings. Show them what you've been doing. Say, look, this is what I'm doing differently. Right? This is what is making this time different. Right? But it's more important that you can prove to yourself you're taking this seriously. What's your convincer strategy? What's your demonstration strategy? So here's the difference. When you convince yourself of something, you generally do it by the way it feels to you, the way you talk about it, or the way that it looks to you. So it's the way something feels, the way it sounds, the way it looks. So if in this, this moment of sobriety, right, it feels different. You have a stronger feeling towards it. You feel more empowered when you go to meetings. Boom. Right? That, that can be part of your convincer strategy. Right? The way you're talking about it. Instead of using words like hope and try, you're saying, I'm doing, I can, I will. Right? The way you talk about it. The way, what you talk about at the meetings you go to or what you talk about with your therapist. Or how does your life look? If you rearranged your furniture in your environment, do you um, see yourself differently in the mirror? Do you go to different places? So now you're going to the gym. That, that now you're seeing other people be healthy. Right? When you look around your home, is it cleaner and less disgusting because you're not going on six-day benders and, and trashing your home? When you start to notice how things are feeling differently, sounding differently, and looking differently, that's how you are unconsciously convincing yourself that this is a shift in your life that's real. Now, your demonstration strategy is the things that you do externally to demonstrate to yourself that this, you're taking this seriously. So it's the way you demonstrate your sobriety and recovery to yourself that will convince you that you're doing it differently this time. So what is your demonstration strategy? If you did something, you know, let's say you were trying to demonstrate to yourself that you knew how to cook macaroni and cheese. You know, is it that right away you look at the box, you read it, and you're like, boil some water, dump this stuff in with some butter, and then mix up with this cheese? All right, cool. Right away. You're like, I can totally do that. Or is it doing it once, right? You made the macaroni and cheese once. Okay, I made it once. I'm good. That's I, I absolutely know how to make macaroni and cheese now. Perhaps it's doing it multiple times. So now you're like, okay, if I do this five or six times and then then I don't look at the instructions anymore. Basically, I can just grab everything and it's like a habit. It's like a muscle memory. Okay, multiple times. Then I've demonstrated that I know how to make macaroni and cheese. Maybe it's each time that you do it. You're re-demonstrating to yourself that you have the, the mental capacity to make macaroni and cheese. So you could do it each time and you might still doubt yourself. But once it's done, you're like, see, I knew I could do it. Perhaps it's just doing it consistently. Right, so it's making macaroni and cheese every single day for 14 days. Right, you're like, okay, I did it consistently. Now I've done it. I'm good to go. Or never. Maybe you just never think that you're going to be good at making macaroni and cheese. People with this kind of demonstration strategy often don't even take on new things because they're like, I'm never going to get good at it. So why even try? So how are you demonstrating yourself? Right, right away you said that's it. I'm sober. I'm not doing it anymore. And now that's it. You you feel and it sounds and it looks differently, and you're good. Perhaps it's going that one day or going to one meeting or going to one therapy session. You're like, okay, that's it. I'm on this sobriety train. I've got this, right? Maybe it's each time you go to a meeting, each time you visit your therapist, each day you wake up, or it's just you need a, you need a, a string of days. So after that first week or two, you're like, okay, this is where I'm at. For me, it was the six-week mark. 
It was whenever I took the alcohol out of my room and I gave it to my roommate. That was it. There was a consistency. I'm like, I've been going to meetings, uh, you know, I've been going to three different kinds of meetings and my therapist. So that's four meetings to go to Kaiser every single week. And I've done this for six weeks. It's 24 times I've gone there. I've gone through six different work cycles. I'm good. There was a consistency there. I needed to see myself do it consistently for six weeks. Or those who say never, right? If you have that mindset, you're going to be very, very difficult for you to be able to shake this. You can do it. Not because other people have done it, but because you have done hard things in your life before. Yes, other people having done it is helpful, but it doesn't minimize your trauma, your pain, and your suffering you've gone through, right? Just because somebody else has done it doesn't mean it's going to be as quote-unquote easy or difficult for you as it was for them. You are your own entity. You are your own person. But thinking that you can never shake this addiction is fallacy. It is false. It is a limiting belief you have about yourself. If no one else is willing to inject you with confidence, allow me to be that person. Sorry if using the word injected is a trigger word for you, but allow me to be the person who infuses you with confidence. You can do this. Follow this list. Follow this list. This is what I did for my first definitely six weeks. And I kept and I maintained this. I still follow this stuff. This stuff is still important to me. And that leads me to number eight. Sobriety is up to you. My sobriety and my recovery are my primary drivers each and every day. I don't necessarily go around and introduce myself. Hi, I'm Jesse. I'm sober. That's not what I mean by making it a primary driver, at least for me. It is just that. Everything I do is done under this veil, done done under this umbrella of sobriety and recovery as my primary thing. As long as I've got that locked in, I can figure out the rest of the stuff. It's not life. It's not sobriety that sucks sometimes. It's just life. So if somebody bumps my car, if I show up late to work, somebody yells at me at the grocery store, whatever it might be, better to be doing this stuff sober than it would be wasted. So your sobriety is up to you. Thinking that you can never be sober is hogwash. You absolutely can be. It's going to take some time, and we'll get to that number 10. But sobriety is up to you. You cannot expect someone to hold you accountable, right? Whose voice are you listening to in your, inside your head anyways? Is it your own? Because that's the voice that says, this is my primary purpose today, to not be high, to not be intoxicated. Are you listening to your friends, your family, your preacher, your teacher, your husband, your wife, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, an author, a podcaster like me, a sponsor, a mentor? Like whose voice are you listening to? If they're uplifting you and empowering you, listen to them if listen to them more. If they're telling you, yeah, we'll see about all this, and they might be trying to drag you down a little bit or hold you back, then go find someone who's gonna pump you up. I mean, sometimes you're gonna have to do this alone. That's why sobriety is up to you. At some point, everybody in the house will be asleep, and if you want to hide in the closet and drink vodka, the likelihood anyone's going to find out is minimized because everybody's asleep. You want to go out to the garage and smoke some weed or do some drugs? Okay, everybody's asleep, or they're all at work, or your boss won't find out because they're going to live with your boss. This is why it's up to you. Banking everything on somebody externally giving you the love and the admiration that you're desiring from this, it's it's not going to always come. You've chosen this. Those normies out there, those take it or leave it kind of drinkers, they're, yeah, I mean, people are going to pat you on the back and they're going to celebrate you at the beginning stages. Some of them, some of them are going to be like, yeah, I don't know, whatever. That's, I don't got a problem drinking. Why do you? 
And they're going to, they might even say bullshit like you're weak willed or you're weak minded. And that's not true. There are no weak people. There are only strong anchors. There's just strong triggers. There are no weak people. There's just really strong anchors. And that person may not have an alcohol or drug problem, but who knows what else they got going on that they're not even willing to admit out loud. At least you have the strength and the willingness to step out of the shadows into the sunshine and say, I have a problem. I need help. The values, your personality traits, these are things that are going to be up for for um, introspection as you move through. But at these beginning stages, right, the depths of your inner self-discovery, it, it's going to shift. It's going to change. But your sobriety is up to you. And if somebody catches you showing up late and they say, see, nothing's ever changed. Here we go again. Right? Okay. So maybe you haven't shifted your value to be um, respectful of other people's times, but it doesn't negate all the work you're doing on yourself away from this person. I'm sorry for you if they've sat there and they've said you're not changing, even though you know you've changed by leaps and bounds. Don't expect them to hold you accountable. Don't expect them to stop you. Don't expect them to talk you out of drinking or using. Don't expect them to immediately change every single one of their language patterns to suit you so you don't feel triggered. This is it. This is up to you. No one can make you drink. You can say, oh, well, they yelled at me, so I drank because they yelled at me. You chose to drink because they yelled. That goes back up to those top, right, about the triggers, about those anchors, fear, anger, sadness, shame, guilt, jealousy. Somebody yells at you, that makes you angry, makes you afraid of rejection, so you go drink because you want to mute the emotions. Your sobriety and recovery is up to you, which means it's up to you to find out what is it that you're afraid of in that moment because they yelled at you, why do you feel angry, and how can you work through it then? You're choosing to feel afraid, or you're choosing to feel angry, where you could choose, like I've, I do this all the time, and that's a good use of a definitive there, is that when I start to feel afraid or angry, I stop myself and I ask myself, what am I really angry about? I feel disrespected by this person. Well, why does their respect matter to me? My own internal respect matters to me more. So no matter what somebody else says, yes, I'm not saying that I don't get a little charged up. I'm not saying that it doesn't trigger anger, but I am quick to, to simmer that down, right? My unconscious reaction to what somebody says could be to turn the heat, of the, heat on the burner all the way up to 10. But it's in, it's, it's in that space between the stimulus and the actual act of yelling back at them that I immediately grab the burner and I turn that knob back down to anything other than 10. Even if it just starts off at nine, then to eight, then to seven, what can you do to start to turn your burner down? It's up to you. It's your accountability. It's your accountability for yourself. Have realistic expectations. Have no expectations, in fact, of how anyone's going to embrace your sobriety and recovery. Expectations are the leading cause of frustration, and frustrations cause annoyance, and annoyance can lead to fear and anger and shame and guilt and sadness and jealousy. Seriously, when you have expectations of how somebody is supposed to treat you when you when you step into sobriety and then they don't, that could be enough justification for your brain to do some mental gymnastics to convince yourself that if this person's not going to honor the journey you're on, with your sobriety and recovery, then screw it. Why are you even doing it? My wife, my husband, my partner, they told me if I got sober that I could stay in the house. And now I'm sober and they're still yelling at me about the garbage. They're still yelling at me about the dishwasher. They don't even appreciate what I'm doing. No, they're not because they're normies. They're give it or take it. So it's like, great, you're sober. Now what? What are you going to do now? 
I mean, sure, the world will celebrate your sobriety for so long, but at some point they're going to be like, okay, well, what are you doing now? It's like getting a degree or coming out of the closet or winning the lottery. It's like, okay, great. You, that happened. You did that. I'm very happy for you that you now have graduated college or you're now comfortable discussing your sexuality in public or you are now a multi-bazillionaire, but what are you going to do now? We are a, we are a what's next kind of world. You can only hang your hat on your sobriety for so long before someone's going to turn to you and be like, yeah, you've been sober for three months. You still don't get to show up 45 minutes late to pick up your son. (laughs) They're going to expect more from you and you should expect more from yourself. So have realistic expectations of what you can expect from other people. And by doing that, you take ownership of your own stuff. Okay, so then number nine, have um, other things... So this is one of my favorites is that, you know, you have to, the hand to mouth habit is extremely, extremely um, ingrained in our head. It's one of the reasons why we eat when we're sad and we drink when we're sad when we, or we even eat when we're happy and drink when we're happy. That hand to mouth thing, it's, it's smoking cigarettes, biting nails, chewing on toothpicks. That's why you want to have number nine, have other drinks, other beverages on hand. This is where cross addiction can show up. Right, you know, is uh, in my show notes I put have other drinks, other food, other activities in mind, and this goes back up to um, what is it number four about changing behaviors, right? You could do some cross addiction stuff here. Next thing you know, you're shopping online all the time, or you're drinking a ton of non-alcoholic beers. Or you're sitting there woofing down a whole bag of Oreos. You've got to, when you change your behaviors, you want to be very mindful of cross addicting over to something else, and that's just taking the energy from one addiction and moving it to another. Right, and this idea of addiction, right? It's a it's a very compulsive behavior. It's something that, um, in fact, what is addiction? Off the top of my head, I don't even know what the actual um, addiction is defined as: chronic relapsing disorder characterized by compulsive drug seeking and use despite adverse consequences. Okay, so long story short, on that one, right, is that it says. Um, despite adverse consequences. That's the part of this sentence I want to stick to. So it's a chronic relapsing. I'm just going to change this all up because I do not like the way that they're they're framing this. So basically, we're talking about a chronic, consistent use of something despite adverse consequences. So we're talking about a chronic, constant use of something despite adverse consequences. So if you just cross addiction and next thing you know, you are consistently uh, chronically shopping or arguing or watching TV, right? And next thing you know, there's adverse consequences. And despite the adverse consequences, and that's the key part of this sentence, despite adverse consequences, if adverse consequences are coming up and you're like, I don't care, this is what I'm going to do and I'm going to do it. And I don't care if the house is burning down around me, right? Now you're looking at cross addictions with shopping sex, porn, right? Other, all these different things, gambling. We're looking for something that's going to light up our dopamine and our serotonin, uh, you know, centers of our brain. And now we're cross addicting over to other things. So when you are looking for ways to, let's say, assimilate, assimilate sobriety into your life, come up with simulations. This is where it's like you can simulate the behavior of, for me, it was simulating the behavior of drinking beer by drinking soda water because the bubbles on the back of my throat. So in order to assimilate myself into sobriety and recovery, I wanted to figure out a way to simulate 
um, something that had texture to it. That's really what it came down to. Remember how I talked earlier about your convincer strategy, like how do things feel? Well, a lot of people are very driven by texture, right? And so you might like the texture of uh, right now. There's a towel sitting in front of me uh, on my desk, and it's got like a, it's got like ripples in it. It's got like a pattern, so there's a rough texture to it. Versus, let's say the napkin I have sitting next to me that's cloth. It's very smooth. So I liked soda water because of the texture of the bubbles on the back of my throat. In fact. Um, as I started getting deeper into my sobriety, I really started to question whether it was ever beer that I was obsessed with as much as the bubbles. I, I liked that tingling on the back of my throat. Mind you, not saying I was trying to justify myself back into beer. Clearly, we're two years sober here. But I started to really question. I was like, wow, I love soda water so much. I love these bubbles. And yes, I drink three or four cans of it a day, but I wasn't having adverse consequences. So I wasn't across addiction. It was just something I enjoyed on top of the gallon of normal flat water I was drinking. So maybe you would like soda water. What kind of flavors would you like? Maybe you get some of those Mio things and squeeze it in there and give it flavor. Perhaps it's tea or flavored waters. But have something else to drink besides just water. Because at some point, your your taste buds are going to want something to light them up. And yes, food is going to be an option. But again, alcohol was a liquid. So if you're trying to lateral it over to something else, like, well, I'll just replace alcohol with, you know, I don't know, popcorn. It's not the same because one's something you drink and another is something that you chew. So you're going to want to be looking for, a, I call it lateral chunking. We're going to be looking to slide it sideways. And this is where soda water, tea, there's lots of, there's lots of weird, awesome be- you know, beverages out there. Drink kombucha, whatever, figure it out. Just have something flavorful whenever your taste buds want something different than flat water. Help get Mio, those little flavorful squeezy things, and put that in your water. And so number 10, time. This is a journey, not a destination. That's why this is called From Sobriety to Recovery. All right, sobriety is this act of quitting. Whenever you step into recovery, it's whenever you really start to put time and effort and energy into your sobriety. You start to heal the things that were causing you suffering. The sadness, the fear, the anger, the guilt, the shame, the jealousy, you start to heal these things. It's going to take time to do this. There is no destination. Two years in, and I would assume that at three, four, five, six, ten, twenty, I've talked to people with 40 years, and I'm like, do you ever feel like you've reached the end of your recovery journey? And they're like, no, because I'm still alive. There's no finish line on this, except I suppose the crematorium or the casket. But we live in an instant gratification society. We want things now, 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 now. You know, faster internet, so pages load faster, right? You know, order some takeout. We want it to show up in five minutes. Well, I mean, unless you wanted it sitting underneath a a warmer at the fast food place, probably not going to get it in five minutes. In fact, please don't bring me my fast food in five minutes. That tells me that it was all just sitting back there in a warming window. But this is where impulse control comes in. Right? We want to feel happy. We want to feel excited. We want something right now. We don't want to feel pain. We don't want to feel fear, anger, shame, sadness, guilt, jealousy. So we have impulse control is mute, 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 mute. What's the number one thing that we've been turning to for years in order to mute? Alcohol, drugs, food, sex, porn, gambling, whatever the addiction is. So that's that impulse control. That's what I'm talking about, Between that space between the stimulus that sets off the, the, the trigger, the anchor, the cue, that activates that, right? The, the space between that trigger point and your 
response, your action. It's that space in between. That's where impulse control lives. It's going to take you some time to harness it. And at first you're going to be burning through your willpower and you're going to be using a lot of mantras and you might have to get up and go outside and walk up and down your driveway 20 times every single time you feel the urge to drink. For me, I remember going to the gym and just staying there for hours on end because I just didn't want to go home and sit in my apartment in my room where I'd always been getting wasted. I, I, I didn't want to even have to test my impulse control. So I just stayed somewhere where alcohol was not. Your triggers, your anchors, these things are going to exist for a long time until you go inside and heal them. It's why I learned NLP because I use neuro-linguistic programming on myself in order to get rid of my anchors. And you may have heard of neuro-linguistic programming from me. Uh, maybe you've heard of cognitive behavioral therapy, EMDR, tapping. These all come from the same family. NLP is what exists above. It's the umbrella all these live under because it's just how you're associating pictures and anchors and memories into your mind and how that triggers things off. What you say in your head helps you program your behaviors. NLP talks about that. Those other modalities are other ways of healing that. So you've more than likely heard of various forms of NLP. And so I want you to be reminded that there are no weak people. There are only strong anchors. Right? There's only these strong triggers. They're going to cue you off and lead you to craving alcohol or drugs because that is what you've used to mute your emotions in the past. So now you're going to be looking for different ways to no longer mute your emotions, but feel them and process them. Everyone changes and deciding that you're no longer going to use it. it, That's a second, but it's solidifying it. That takes time. I got rid of the drugs well before I got rid of the alcohol because they wore me out. I was burned out. I just said, I don't, I don't want this shit in my life anymore. It wasn't serving me. Honestly, a 50 bag of blow wasn't going to do it anymore. I mean, it was, and I didn't have $3,000 to go all fricking, you know, uh, Scarface on a party. I was like, that's it. I, I, I just don't want it anymore. The people I was hanging out with in order to get these drugs just sucked. But alcohol was socially acceptable. So I would go out and have a few. Then I'd go home and I would drink more in, in excess. In excess. <laughs> Funny, that's the band's name. Or it's also doing things in excess. And Ultimately, wanting to drink just from the get-go, right out the right out the cannon, the moment it touched my lips each and every day, like 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 there was a million dollars at the end of the bottle, like there was immortality at the bottom of that bottle. I, my drinking got so out of control. I just stayed home because I was I was blacking out more frequently and I was drinking way too hard. So it's going to take time. Embrace this time. Each and every day is going to be spectacular in its own way. And some of them are going to suck because that's just life sometimes. But doing this is for you. This, this, I promise you, if you do not already feel that this is the best decision you've ever made for yourself, give it some time. You wouldn't expect to pick up juggling or to pick up calligraphy or to, I I don't know, think about it. Most apps, when you first pick them up, it takes some time working around and figuring them out. But you do it day in and day out for a little while. And before you know it, it's like posting something on social media is like snap your fingers. But it wasn't always that way. It took you some time to learn the app. It took you some time to learn hashtags. It took you some time to learn how to, you know, move around the app. And before you know it, it's like it was second nature. Like it's always just been there. That will come. There will be times where you'll forget all about the fact that you're even sober. And then there's other times where it will literally be staring right in front of you. It's all about your environment, the way you're thinking, and the mindset you have. And there's so many more topics about this coming. 
you know, emotional maturity and being able to accept responsibility for your words and actions, not just from the past, but from now. Coming up in here in the next couple episodes, we're actually going to talk about that cue craving response reward, about how your brain creates habits and how whenever you want to start really getting yourself healed and getting yourself better, you start monitoring these triggers, these anchors, these cue points and how you can shift them. It's all based off the book, um, Atomic Habits. We're going to be discussing how you can accept yourself and have non-judgment. And because all these episodes are right there in front of you on your app, then you can see what's coming. This is just me going through show notes and saying, I cannot wait to discuss some of this stuff. So I've made this long enough. I didn't mean to go an hour. Um, I really hope that you find this as beneficial and as valuable as I do creating these. So again, to remind you of what they were, um, get booze out of your house shifting your mindset, right? Understand about not having it near you. Even if somebody drinks in your house, ask them to take it out of the house for a little while while you settle into your new life. Make drinking a non-negotiable. That's it. It's number one. Nothing else is as important as your sobriety and recovery, right? Be able to have have self-awareness and identify your triggers, your cues, your activations, your anchors. Notice where these are at in your life. Right, I can't wait till you get to episode number six where I discuss that in depth. Go ahead and start listening to that one. It's available. It's, it's. All right, so let's go over these one more time before we get you out of here. Get booze out of your house. I didn't, I didn't, all right, but that was my way. What's your way? Get it as far away from you as possible. It is extremely important. I will not be the only one to tell you this. You do you, whatever you think you can make work, but I'm telling you, if you're serious about this, having it not within arm reach is more than likely going to be the way you go. I'm an outlier in this. I have talked to enough people to know it is not the normal way, but it has definitely been done before. Get booze out of your house. Ask the people in your house to get the booze away from you. Whatever it takes, make this your number one priority. Make it non-negotiable. That's number two. Nothing stands in the way of your sobriety each and every day. Later on down the road, I get it. Other things can take over a priority, but this is serious. You want it to make sure that you are sober each and every day. Yes, you still got to go to work. You still got to pick up the kids. These things are important. You can't check out of your life completely. But make drinking non-negotiable. It is off the table. Identify your triggers. Be looking for where fear, anger, sadness, shame, guilt, jealousy, lack of self-worth, rejection. Be monitoring that. Go back if you need and listen to the episode about six human needs, episode three. This is absolutely going to be where you start not having these human needs met. Those are going to be some of your trigger points. You're going to have anchors there. Change your behaviors. Whatever you used to do, I'm telling you, shake the whole damn thing up. Shake it all up. I used to watch TV for hours on end. Now I'm allotted only a certain amount each and every day because I've got other things I want to do whether it's create this podcast, go speak at addiction recovery centers, just go to meetings on my own, whatever it is. I got other things I want to do. Watching six hours of friends back to back to back to back to back is just not the way I want to spend my days anymore. Don't do it alone, right? Go to meetings, talk to people, get somebody else who's going through this in your corner, right? This is going to number seven, so we won't jump ahead. Let's not forget number six, right? You might have to quit socializing for a little while. At the very least, be aware and be mindful of how you are socializing. Who in your social circle might tempt you to drink? Stay away from them for a little while. Let them know what you're doing and say, hey, I'm not kicking you out of my life for good, but for a little while, I've got to go do me for a minute. And there he goes, number seven, tell someone. 
Find a confidant. Find someone who will back you up. Right? If you're doing the 12 steps, a sponsors can show up and do that. If you're doing refuge recovery, they have the four truths. There's a mentor who can help you do that. Find someone else that you can tell. Right? Get solid in your sobriety. And remember, number eight, it's up to you. People can only hold you accountable so much. Right? You have to take ownership of this decision. Ownership of what you are doing. Have other drinks on hand. Right? Again, soda water, tea, flavored water, some some low-calorie snacks. Hell, at the beginning, don't worry necessarily. I'm not giving you carte blanche to go and gorge yourself on sugar. But at the beginning stages, don't necessarily worry yourself too much about how many cookies you're eating and things of that nature. Right? You're in the beginning stages. Let's get you through that first you know, week, month, 90 days, whatever it takes. A lot of people feel great reward on their 30-day chip mark. Right? So get yourself that 30-day chip. Whatever you've been doing with your nutrition, we can figure out later on. But at the beginning stages, number one priority is not to be drinking. That's the non-negotiable. If it means wolfing down on a bunch of Oreos, we'll figure that out later. I'm not saying get yourself addicted to Oreos. I'm just simply saying that right now, number one priority, not drinking. All the other things that you start to do in order to accomplish that, we can work on. But for now, be focused on the drinking, right? Have something else on hand, a little tasty treat. Something I like bubbles. Who knows what you like? And just realize getting better takes time. You are instant gratification, impulse control. This is what we live in. This is how we've been programmed. We have gotten this gracious. I can only imagine kids who are born with cell phones in their hands. They talk about impulse, lack of impulse control and instant gratification disease. It's going to just, here comes addiction. We think it's, we think it's overtaking society now. We have seen nothing yet. Make sure you're focused on these. Remember, this is up to you. This is an amazing, amazing decision. Don't start doing mental gymnastics trying to get this out of your head. Do not think that you can justify having one. The bell's been rung. The toothpaste is out of the tube. You are here because you know that this is what you want to be doing with your life. Make it your number one priority each and every day. And I can assure you that it will get easier. It will feel more normal. And you will wake up and there will be a day where it's just what you do. You don't use anymore. And I cannot wait for you to feel what I am feeling here on my two-year soberversary. Nothing has ever been the same. I didn't want it to be. It changed everything. Every day is the best day of my life because I wake up sober. Thank God I did not die in that shit tub on January 12th of 2017. What a sad, sad, sad moment that would have been for the people who love me to have found me in such a state. Thank you. Thank you, Past Jesse, for making present Jesse's life what it is, that it even exists. And I can't wait for the future. I can look back and be able to celebrate number three in 364 days. <laughs> Much love, my friends. Take care of yourselves. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.